Well, Lord, we come into your presence. And we come here, Lord, I believe, God, this morning especially, misunderstanding the basics of our faith. May we give up works righteousness and embrace the cross. In the name of Christ, amen. Have a seat, everyone. Well, we move into our teaching time, but after this will come communion, and we're doing something a little different. We're doing confession and absolution, and I'll explain that here in just a moment. Because we're talking about one of the most central, central themes to Christianity this morning. At its core, we are talking about something that we call, theologically, we call it grace. But around here at Lakeland, it's just the water we swim in. This passage that I'm about to read to you, uh, that will actually, you can read along with it uh, silently, it'll be on the screen, but it's Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. Uh, If you have your Bible with you, or if you have it on an app or something like that, uh, you can look it up, but also it's there. I I bet you this is in our top three Bible passages around here. Prodigal son, maybe rich young ruler, but this one, about what Bible translators have called, just arbitrarily, they called it the sinful woman. This passage defines Lakeland. Many of our ministries around here come right out of this passage. I would even say, this is for another discussion, some of our politics come out of this. At least mine, okay. That's what I mean by us, just me. Well, here it is. Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. Now, hey, by the way, understand that this is like a official, an official, formal-type invitation of Jesus, the rabbi, to come to Simon the Pharisee's house. So it's not just having friends over. We're not really sure that Simon likes Jesus, but it's a political thing going on, okay? So enter into it, all right? A woman in the city who was a sinner, having learned that he was eating in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster jar of ointment. She stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and began to bathe his feet with her tears and dry them with her hair. And then she continued kissing his feet and anointing them with the ointment. Now, okay, once again, by the way, Enter into first century Middle Eastern uh, Palestinian culture on this thing. Understand, they all sit low. The table is low, and they sit on big cushions. Your left arm, elbow, is leaning on the cushion. That's your impolite hand. And your right is your, you know, your, your right hand. <laughs> and that's the one you eat with. You take a piece of flat bread. There usually aren't utensils. And you take the food off of a platter with a piece of bread, and you eat it that way. So, if you get the picture, you're, everyone's leaning on their right elbow, and everyone's feet stick out behind them. That's how come the woman can get to his feet. She's not crawling around underneath the table like in your kitchen. Okay? So, because you want your smelly sandal feet sticking out back, particularly in this story, as you'll see. And, uh, and so that's why she can get to this whole thing. So, if you want to picture it, Sorry, Da Vinci, but the Last Supper didn't look like everybody on one side of the table so they could all get in the picture. Uh, Instead, everyone's kind of spooning around the table, if you know what I mean. Just not real close. But everyone's on their left elbow. So it becomes important, like who's on your left and your right, because you kind of get FaceTime 
if you know if you're on the right and if you're on the left, Jesus, you're seeing the back of his head. So just get that in your mind. Anytime you read this stuff in the Bible, like how they're all sitting, this is the way it's going on. Okay. Now, when the Pharisee Simon, who had invited Jesus, saw it, he said to himself, "If this man were a prophet, he would have known." Who and what kind of woman this is who's touching him? That she is a sinner. Jesus spoke up and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. Teacher replied, speak. A certain creditor had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debts for both of them. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the greater debt. And Jesus said, you've judged rightly. And then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, You see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she's bathed my feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she's not stopped kissing my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. And therefore, I tell you, her sins, which were many, have been forgiven. Hence, she has shown great love. But the one to whom little is forgiven? Then he said to her, uh, uh, loves little, sorry, but the one who, whom little is forgiven loves little. And then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. But those who were at the table with him, in other words, all the other officials and the elite, began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Well, it's a pretty straight-ahead story. You don't have to really be a Bible scholar that much to figure out what's going on here. There's no secrets in this thing. It's a straight-ahead sort of a dinner, and a sinful woman comes in, and Jesus begins to describe uh, not only God, but he begins to define himself. He's the kind of person who can forgive sin. That's the real outrage that's going on for Simon and so forth, but he didn't really get the real point of the whole thing. I'm not sure we get the whole grasp, though, of what's going on deep inside in this deal. It's pretty obvious on the outside, but you have to understand that Pharisees, Simon the Pharisee and the other Pharisees, are highly religious group of rabbis, okay? I think Pharisees often get a bad rap in church, uh, and, you know, they have problems, of course, but they're bo- mostly it's because they are squeaky clean moralist. They are so moral, you could put your most moral person today against them, and none will ever me- measure up. These guys lived a perfect life, okay? Now, the problem with that is is that trying to live a perfect life takes an awful lot of self-management. You know what I mean? And so they get rather uptight. They get real uptight. They get super uptight. But there's more to it, okay? There's more than what's going on here. They're moralist with a cause. They're political moralist. I mean, they're certainly just religious moral, and they're pious and so forth, but they're also politically moralist, because for the last 600 years or so in Israel, they have been in exile, or they've been oppressed by another nation. Currently, it was the Roman Empire at Jesus' time. The Roman Empire has got their foot on Israel's neck, excising exorbitant taxes, you know, taking all of their produce, and they're not free. They're in their own land, but they're not free. The Pharisees are under this political agenda. God will bless us if we get back to keeping Torah. 
If we get back to keeping Torah, if we get back to keeping the Hebrew law, then these Romans will leave and we will become free people. If we can get all of the sinners out of the country and get everyone living morally, then God will bless us. Okay? So there's sort of like, uh, what do you call those? Uh, original interpretation type people, you know, except it's the Old Testament and so forth instead of a constitution. They think that's what's going on. As a matter of fact, they're still around today, by the way, in Israel, Zionists and so forth, um, that are highly religious. So they're moralists with a cause. <clears throat> and they're trying to get everyone to keep the law. All right? If we just keep the law, then God will relent and bless us. So this woman, when she comes in, we like to think of her as like, oh, man, she's just like another poor sinner. No, 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 no. Not to Simon and the other Pharisees. Not even to the rest of the nation and the people. She's not just an individual private sinner. She is a national traitor. She is a traitor to the nation. She is messing up the whole country, her and everyone like her who sins. That's what's going on here. So it's a big deal, all right? This nameless woman, and it's interesting that in, the, in this text that she never has a name. You know, Simon has a name, but she doesn't. She doesn't care about empire and politics. She doesn't care at all. She just wants to be whole again. She wants to be acceptable. She wants to belong. Because right now, she has no country. She has no people. She doesn't belong to anyone or anything. She has no family. We don't know what her sin is. It doesn't say what her sin is. It usually is assumed to be adultery or prostitution. But it could have been even hemorrhaging. Or a fistula, which we know a lot about around here in, uh, in, in Lakeland because we support uh, fistula operations in Liberia. It could have been something like that that made her unclean according to Torah. Okay? And somehow it's her fault. But nonetheless, no matter what it is, whatever her sin is, she's an outcast. She's unacceptable. She's politically, religiously, cultically, socially unacceptable. And scholars only tend to assume that she was a prostitute because she had this rich alabaster vial of perfume. Where did she get it? The assumption is, is that she used it in plying her trade. It was worth a year's wages. I don't know what you make a year, but just say that's what it's worth. And she's carrying it around with her. Crazy. She was on a mission. You know, I'm not really sure all of us well-behaved suburbanites can really relate to this sort of extreme ostracization, you know, being ostracized like this. But shame-filled people can in our culture. And there are a whole lot of well-behaved, nice, polite, smiling people out here in suburbia who walk around with a boatload of shame. They walk around with a terrible self-image inside of them. As a matter of fact, I've become convinced that really high-performance people oftentimes are driven in their performance to excel at work and in the neighborhood and sports and all sorts of stuff that they do simply because of shame. It becomes an energy to them. As a matter of fact, I remember one time I was sitting in China with a group of students, and there was a little girl there, very well-behaved, pretty, and then suddenly I looked down at her forearms and they were all carved up. She was a cutter. 
And so as politely as I could say, I said, why are your arms cut? And she said, because if I don't get all good grades, my parents will hate me. I said, I don't know what I said to her. I hope I said something godly. <laughs> I probably just said nothing. Shame can drive people to do crazy things, even the best of people. Shame will destroy you from the inside out. I'll never forget years ago, going to a funeral of a young woman. And there was her alcoholic father at the visitation. And you would have thought that he was in a bar on Friday afternoon at 4. High as a kite, back slapping, slapping, red in the face, yucking it up with his buddies up front while the long line went all the way out the door. And next to him was his daughter in the coffin. And you would have never known that it was a funeral. Completely shut down. No grief going on. Just numbed out. Like he was every day of his life. Shame put her in that coffin. And shame was from him. And he just kept it going. Shame-filled people are always not down and outers on skid row. Many well-dressed, well-heeled corporate types are shame-filled. And we're around them all day long. And we never discover it until they have some sort of midlife crisis or whatever. Matter of fact, I think a lot of helper profession people are filled with shame, and that's why they help. That's kind of my area. Pastors, doctors, nurses, EMTs, educators, oftentimes are driven by something that says, I'm not good enough, I better try harder. You see, everyone, we in the church are pretty famous for saying you need Jesus. You need Jesus. You need Jesus. I need Jesus. We all need Jesus. And I think a lot of people out there in culture say, like, I don't think we need Jesus. I don't know what you're selling, but I don't really need Jesus. I'm a pretty good person. Okay, they're living off the Simon the Pharisee, I'm a pretty good person plan, right? They're thinking, like, why do I need Jesus? I don't need Jesus. I'm good. I'm fine. What's wrong with me? I'm all right. I'm just good enough. I don't need to be perfect like Simon. I just need to be good enough, and I'm good enough. I guess God will accept me. Maybe I don't even care about God. You see, it's just, if it's all about being moral, good grief. There are plenty of people out there that are a lot more moral than me. Ask my family. I am, I am like, I'm just like benchmarking, you know, this Christian life. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm not benchmarking. I mean, I'm like at the threshold. I mean, have you ever run into people like at work in your neighborhood and they're like awesome people? I mean, they're so nice and they're so moral and you're like, golly, I wish I was that nice. Now we got Jesus and they don't, I guess. You know, and somehow like they don't go to church. They're totally secular people. And you're like, they're a much better Christian than me. We started getting around all of these families of our kids, you know, <clears throat> in sports. My gosh, they're good people. You know, I just try and keep my mouth shut when I'm around them so they don't find out anything about me. (laughs) There are awesome people out there, 
who aren't Christian and don't care if they're Christian. And they're great and they're moral. If it's all about being moral, you don't need Jesus. Christianity is not about being moral. It's not about like being Simon the Pharisee. And then there's the other thing we all say in the church. The whole world, not just you, the whole world needs Jesus. I mean the world needs Jesus. Lots of well-meaning Christians think that Jesus is all about salvation. Really what Jesus is all about is eternal life. John 3.16, you know, that you might have eternal life. And they think that's what it's all about. Just get the get out of hell free card and you're good. Right? That's the whole Christian. We need to sell this. We need to get them to pray the prayer. We need to get them to sign on the line. And we can succeed at this thing. But, you know, the deal is, is that most world religions, the, the top world religions, the ones you know about, like Hinduism and so forth, Hinduism has an afterlife. You don't need to believe in Jesus to have an afterlife. Buddhism has an afterlife, and they don't even have a deity. Islam certainly has an afterlife. Judaism has an afterlife. If it's just about going on to the afterlife, you don't need Jesus. Matter of fact, most secular people, even atheists, believe that something happens, a lot of atheists, not all, something happens after you die, that somehow you continue on, like some sort of eternal vacation. It's just pretty good. There's like an all-day buffet or something. I don't know. So you don't need Jesus to, to believe in eternal life. Most people believe in life after death, even people who don't believe in God. Very, very interesting. Then why do we need Jesus? Why does the sinful woman need Jesus? Why does the alcoholic father at the funeral need Jesus? Why does Ivy, the little cutter girl, need Jesus? Why do well-mannered, good, moral suburbanites need Jesus? Because deep within the human soul is a need to be loved. Accepted by the largest thing that we can conceive of, God. Something that says, I am okay. What you see is what you get, and it's still okay. I just want to be loved. People will dye their hair pink or blue or orange, and they'll pierce their body black and blue and get tattoos all over them, take countless selfies, usually with food, you know, and, and wear a man bun and drive a $20,000 really expensive motorcycle all so they can be so unique. But let's face it, folks, nobody is unique just to impress themselves. That's what they say. But the truth is, nobody wears a man bun for their own sake. I'm sorry, man bun wears... You do it so somebody will notice you and think you're cool. And that's why you're driving the Harley. I'm sorry. I know you're trying to be free. But who cares about being free unless somebody notices that you're being free? And why would you get the tattoo? Well, it's about me, man. It's my self-expression. And so that other people will notice. I mean, there are the few really authentic people who put the tattoo where no one will ever see it, but... Everyone wants to be loved and accepted. And we will do the most outrageous, special, unique things in order for everyone to like us. Humanity is made that way. 
I spent the last few years in my studies uh, studying attachment disorder. It's a psychological thing, you know. It's not Christian. Uh, started in the 60s. And attachment, reactive attachment disorder is a, a, a condition where someone does not attach to another human being uh, and figures out a way to survive on their own. And um, probably about what they say is somewhere around 40 to 60% of the population has a reactive attachment disorder where they avoid people or they're anxious and so forth, and so they don't build any attachment with another human being. And it can be very, very extreme, or it can be pretty mild, and people manage it all day long. Matter of fact, uh, for some attachment disorders, you'll get rewarded very well. You can perform very well. There are those kind of people at work where you're like, hey, there's Joe. What did he do this weekend? I don't know. What's Joe's family like? I don't know. Joe does great work. He's a top salesman. He's an awesome engineer. He's an excellent doctor. Blah, 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 blah. On and on and on. Nobody knows nothing about Joe. Just in a shell. Keeping everybody away. That's reactive attachment disorder. But it's really a story of abandonment. And the worst thing you can ever do to a human being is abandon them. It will scar them for life. They'll spend their entire life trying to figure out how to become and get over the shame of being abandoned. To be abandoned violates the soul. To be alone violates the soul. This is why we need Jesus, everyone. This is why we need a relationship, not a religion. This is why we need to belong. This is why. Not to be moral, not just to get into heaven, but to belong. And belong to each other and belong to God. In walks Jesus upon earth, and a no-name, outcast, sinful woman falls at her feet, risking her life, by the way. They could have taken her out and stoned her for this. And she falls at the feet of the good rabbi Jesus, the prophet Jesus, the miracle performer, all the way. Can you picture her waking up that morning saying, I'm going to, I'm, this is it, this is my day, this is my moment. I'm going to go to that Simon guy's house where I am not invited, not welcome, and may very well cost me my life, and I'm going to take my whole life savings, the thing that maybe I use in my profession, the whole thing, I'm going to take this vial of perfume, this ointment, and I'm going to go there, and I'm going to bust it and open it up, and I'm going to pour out my life, and maybe this rabbi Jesus will accept me. Was he going to forgive her? How would she ever know that? Why did she do it? If I didn't mention it, you know, scholars oftentimes think that the sinful woman was Simon's daughter because they can't figure out how she would ever be allowed into the house. And she breaks the perfume and she breaks her soul and it all pours out. And Jesus turns to Simon and says, Simon, do you know my gracious father? Notice Jesus' language. Father. He belongs. He's in the family. Not, do you know my theoretical God? 
And Simon doesn't really get the question because he's so busy trying to live out fulfilling the Torah and be perfect. But she gets it because all she wants is to belong. You know my gracious father, Simon? He wants you as a child. Clean, polite, moral living will not solve her sin problems and it didn't solve Simon's problems. The only thing that would solve the shame inside of her and maybe the shame inside of Simon and the shame for the whole nation is grace. Grace. This thing that Jesus pours out on the cross. This thing that you and I crave so desperately and somehow we shake our head no saying, I don't think I deserve it. I think I'm going to stick with the Simon plan. I'm going to, I'm going to try and be good enough. I just need to be good enough. Just enough. And maybe God will accept me. It's okay. Or I'll just ignore it and just go on with my life and numb out. Over the years at Lakeland, I've had people tell me that they went to church their whole life and they never heard about grace. And I, I still can't understand it. What else are you going to talk about at church if you don't talk about grace? If you don't talk about God's grace and acceptance? What are you talking about? Moralism? Fundamentalism? Let's just get another notch in our Bible for getting people into heaven. What else are we going to talk about? It's all about the cross, everyone. The cross, it's not a punishment to you. It's your ticket to be accepted into heaven, meaning God's grace. I remember uh, years ago, I had a woman uh, come up to me. She'd been coming here for a long time, and she was a great volunteer. And she said, so, you know, um, she had, we used to do a midweek Wednesday night service when we first started. And, uh, and she hadn't come to it. And I thought that was kind of curious. And so I said, uh, you don't come to New Community. And uh, she said, yeah, okay, well, Sunday, you know, you're really nice. But, like, on Wednesday night, is that when you yell, us, yell at us and tell us how bad we are? Because that was her whole understanding of church. Like, sooner or later, somebody's going to go around to tell, yelling at you and telling you how bad you are. So she started coming, and she goes, okay. She kind of kept waiting for the other shoe to drop the whole time at church. And then I had another couple come to me and said, we got to leave Lakeland. We love it here. Everyone's nice. It's great and stuff. But you keep talking about this grace thing, and, and we just can't buy into the whole grace idea. We, there's got to be something where we earn our way into God's favor. And I just, we just have never heard that. And I'm like, Really? you've never heard that? And then I talked to a really successful businessman one time, and he says, I totally understand what you're saying about grace. I just think we have our part to do. At which point I said, I don't think you understand grace. (laughs) And then there was Daryl, the 17-year-old when I was doing youth ministry way back in the day, and we'd gone to camp together with a whole bunch of other kids, high schoolers. And they had a say-so one night near the end of camp. And about, oh, I'd say almost half of the kids got up and did a say-so. They said, I'm committing my life to Christ. That was awesome. But we were back in town a couple of weeks later, and Daryl and I were driving around, I don't know, going to get some fast food or something. And I said, Daryl, why don't you think, why don't you think just every, why didn't everybody in the room? I mean, it's so easy. It's absolutely free. God's forgiveness and the grace is absolutely free. It costs you nothing, right? And Daryl's like, well, actually, Daryl was really smart. 
Well, actually, it costs you everything. Blink, light went on for me. It's absolutely free and it'll cost you your entire life. Because there's just one thing about God. He wants all of you. You can't be saved by grace. You can't be covered by grace and hold out a portion of your life. It's not grace then at that point. That's still the Simon plan where you're working out your own salvation. Your own acceptability. Your own perfection. It's free and it costs you everything. God is a greedy God, <laughs> if you want to put it in those terms. And he's greedy for all of you and all of me. A lot of people around here have discovered this, what we just started calling a long time ago, a grace explosion. It's this sort of aha moment where you just sort of don't have any words to describe it. For me, I was 16 years old, and I got down on my knees on a Monday night next to my bed in my parents' house. I don't know why I got on my knees. I had never been trained to be on my knees. I didn't grow up Catholic or Orthodox or Anglican or anything like that. I just, I think I was just felt like getting low. And I just got down on my knees there in front of my dresser next to my bed. And I, and I, and I came up with this really eloquent, well-thought-out prayer that just said, God, help me. I expected absolutely nothing to happen. I had no expectations. It was just me lamenting. Crying out to God, thinking, where am I heading in life? And I know it sounds corny. I feel like a TV evangelist when I always say this. But a weight lifted off of me. Somehow, at this point, I'm out of words. Something released off of me. I don't know if it was guilt. I don't know if it was shame. Shame. And I felt somehow accepted. Something like God was saying, it's okay. It's just fine. And I went to bed that night, laying there pondering that. And I got up the next morning, and the feeling was still there, like something had been lifted off. And I went through that day, and then the next day it was still there. And the day after that, and the day after that, and even this morning, I was thinking about it real hard. I don't know how to describe it to you. I don't know how to tell you how grace works. It just works this way. In a few moments, we're going to celebrate uh, what the old timers called the love feast in Christianity. The love feast is the communion, the Eucharist, the Lord's table, as I like to call it. And it's a table where everyone's invited, but the only people who can come are those that actually believe they're a sinner. How's that for a weird invitation? Because if you think you're still good enough and that you don't need God, you don't need to come to communion. Communion's only for red meat-eating sinners. You know, if you're perfect and you're working on the perfect plan, the Simon plan, cool. No need to come for it. And I don't need to be facetious. You know, if you don't agree with this thing, then stay in your seat. That's fine. It's Lakeland. You can stay in your seat. So, but if you think you get a seat at the table based upon Jesus and not upon you or some portion of you and your good deeds, then you're invited to come. That's the only real qualification. And then we tear off a piece of the bread and we dip it in the chalice and we consume it right there as a way of saying, like, it's not magic going on or anything like that. We just simply say, like, yeah, I belong. 
That's what I'm remembering. I'm remembering moment by moment that Jesus' body and his blood on a cross was spilt for me. And I am washed and covered over in grace. That's what it means to Christians when they take communion, the Lord's table. And we do it all the time because for some reason, the grace leaks out of us and we get on this performance, keep Torah mode. Especially a bunch of performance people who perform at very high levels. Before we do that, though, we thought it'd be appropriate if we did confession and you received what's called absolution, which comes from the word absolved, meaning somebody declares to you and says, it's okay. Remember, God has forgiven you. I'm not forgiving you. God is forgiving you. But sometimes it's really good to hear it in church especially after what I hear all the time when people say, like, I never heard about grace in church. So would you stand with me, please? And if you don't agree with the confession, then just stay silent on it. But say the confession out loud, and then do not say the absolution, which I think we took it off the screen. First service, we had it on there, but we just took it off, not to confuse anyone. But the confession, say it. See if the words aren't yours. It's good to confess with your mouth. It's good to have yourself hear yourself saying this. Not for shame's sake, but simply because this is your invitation to the table. So join me. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, in word, and deed, by what we've done and by what we've left undone. We've not loved you with our whole heart. We've not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We're truly sorry. We humbly repent. And for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. Almighty God, have mercy on you and forgive you all of your sins through our Lord Jesus Christ. Strengthen you in all goodness and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Keep you in eternal life. Amen. Well, on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread, and he broke it. And uh, he'd given thanks, and he broke it, and he said, this is my body, that's for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. Until he comes. And he comes over and over and over in your soul, in your life, because you get accepted through grace. That's what you're doing this. This is why the church does this all the time. Because the grace leaks out. And we need to remember, it's not, it's not us. It's the body and blood. It's Jesus. And that's why we're accepted. And that's why we also get up and walk forward to say, like, I'm coming to receive it. I just don't have to think about it. I'm going to do it. And that's why it's bread and it's juice. It's like it's something real. It's something you taste. It communicates to your body more than just in your head. Good grief, we're all in our head so much. So you come forward whenever you're ready. Uh, as we pray, uh, after we pray, the words that Jesus taught us to pray. So join me on this. 
Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Save us from the time of trial. Deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours now and forever. Amen. And therefore, everyone, we proclaim the mystery of faith. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. Hallelujah. The gifts of God for the people of God each day, each and every moment. May Jesus Christ be as real to you as this food and this drink. Come forward whenever you're ready. Lord, you have fed us with spiritual food, and you're about to send us out into the world to be salt and light in the name of Christ. And so may we carry with you, uh, carry you with us in feeding upon you all the day. We all said, Amen. Well, uh, everyone, uh, let me suggest something to you. Um, this idea that God is gracious and accepts you not based upon what you've done, good or bad, of course. Maybe it'd be the day where you're like, I, I need to do something about this. I need to talk to that guy or a good friend who, you know, got you here. Or maybe just to keep it quiet or whatever, you just want to go back there to the corner after service when we get done and just light a candle. The candle's not magic or anything like that, but you just need to do something. There's even a place you can kneel or sit back there. And you just say, like, I, I need to remember this, that I'm absolved of whatever I've done. And I just need to stand in the grace. Maybe it's your very first time. And you're like, or maybe it's the, you know, 18,000th time. You're like, here I am, Jesus. What you see is what you get. I want to belong. I want to keep belonging. So I just propose that you light a candle. It's a small thing, but it might mean a lot to you. Yeah? Or if you want to get together and talk, I'm cool with that too. That's good. Would you stand with me, please? All right. And then the other thing is, is let's end with the Northumbria Celtic blessing. We love this blessing around here. I was sitting around thinking about it. I thought, you know, we ought to do a different blessing. And then I thought, why? So, all together, everyone. May the peace of the Lord Christ go with you wherever he may send you. May he guide you through the wilderness, protect you through the storm. May he bring you home rejoicing at the wonders he's shown you. May he bring you home rejoicing once again into our doors. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace, everyone.